Good morning again. You can open in your Bible to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. We are continuing an Advent series through Isaiah titled God With Us. And we've seen over the past few weeks uh, from Isaiah 7, Isaiah portrays the birth of Christ as a sign. In Isaiah 9, we've seen a light pushing out the darkness. In Isaiah 11, last week, we looked at the righteous branch. In this morning's text, we're going to see Isaiah provide another angle of the coming Messiah as he portrays him as the chosen servant of the Lord. And as we consider prophecy, Ben has mentioned, it it is a little difficult jumping and and kind of dropping in the middle of Isaiah. Um, So I'll I'll try to give a little context, but I want to give a a brief analogy that I think will be helpful as we consider prophecy and how we should study it. And I think oftentimes, and I think Isaiah 42 is is a prime example, we should look at it like a, a mountain range. So let me just explain what I mean. As you look at a mountain range from a distance, if you're far away, it may look like a single peak or it may look like they're all in a straight line, right? But as you get closer, you start to see the depth of the range. You start to see one tall peak here, then a valley, then maybe another tall peak. And so it's similar with prophecy in that there's often an immediate fulfillment or context. So there's an immediate context that Isaiah is writing to but there's also a greater and ultimate fulfillment in Christ and then an outworking in Christ's people, in the people of God. And and even further depth as we consider the fulfillment in Christ. Oftentimes we, we want to think that everything happens at one time, but in Christ we see more of the already and not yet. In his first coming when he was born, we see the beginning stages of fulfillment and yet there is a, an aspect of that, there is a not yet that will be fulfilled ultimately. So just something to keep in mind as we read this, this passage from Isaiah 42. Again, after we read, I'll, I'll give a brief context of where we're dropping in here in Isaiah 42. But let's read verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
Let me pray for us briefly again. Heavenly Father, I, I feel the weight of, of your word and, and not wanting to be an obstacle or, or hindrance to your word going forward. So I pray that you would do that. I pray that, again, that you would use your word by your spirit for your glory and for the edification of, of your people here. Would you give us eyes to, to see and ears to hear? Would you remove obstacles so that we may hear from you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the last six months or so, uh, anytime we're driving a car, our, our boys are constantly looking for sports cars, right? And we hear multiple times. As a family, now we're, we're all looking. If you can believe it, Sherry and Kinsley are even now identifying and looking for sports cars. So we're seeing, look, a Corvette. Look, a Mustang, a Camaro. Why do we do that? Why as a family are we now all on the lookout for cars? It's not, it's not some earth-shattering revelation. It's because we all want everyone in the car to enjoy it. Right? We want everyone to see it. For you, it might be animals. You see deer. Look, deer out in the field. And it's not just when we're driving. We, we, we do this all the time. Right? Funny video. Look, you got, you got to see this. A great article, encouraging song. Basically, all of social media is, is just, look, I, I like this, and you should too. I think you'll like this. I think you'll enjoy it. And when someone says, look, what, what do we do? We, we look, right? Where? Where? I don't, don't want to miss it. Now consider how much more important when, the, the, when God, the creator of the universe, creator of the stars, the planets, the sun and the moon, the creator of the oceans, fish of the sea, animals on the ground, birds in the air, creator of plants, trees, waterfalls, canyons, mountains, sunsets, creator of us, the giver of life. How much more important when he says, look, when he says, behold. In our passage this morning, the Lord is telling us to look, to behold and he does so for our good and his glory. In his grace, he tells us very specifically where to look. He tells us what to look at. Better yet, who to look at. Namely, his son, his chosen servant, Jesus Christ. And this is essentially what we try to do every week. We try to hold up Jesus and say, look. Look at Jesus. So if you want, if you want a point of application, I'm going to give you one right up front. Look at Jesus. Look to Christ. And I'll even give you one more. As you look to Christ, encourage others. Urge others to look to Christ. This is essentially Hebrews 10. Look to Jesus. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So much of what we do as a church, as, as the body of Christ, is, is we look at Jesus together. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Isaiah 42, we're going to look at Christ. And I think we'll be helped in doing so if we consider this passage under three headings. First, we want to identify who is the servant. So we want to look at the identity of this servant. Number two, what has he come to do? 
What does the servant come to do? So we're going to consider the mission of the servant. And third, why should we have any confidence in the servant or that mission? So we're going to look at the God of the servant. Number one, the identity of the servant. Number two, the mission of the servant. Number three, the, the God of the servant. So let's start with the identity. Who, who is this servant? And, and this will be the longest point, so, so don't be alarmed if it takes me a bit to get to points two and three. Um, and there's also certainly some overlap. In, in the identity, we're going to see part of his mission. We're going to see why we have confidence and so forth. So as I mentioned before, it, it is important as we, as we drop into Isaiah 42 to see a bit of the context here. Um, there's a shift that is started in chapter 40 of Isaiah where we begin to more clearly see the focus of restoration, more focus on the promise of Israel's future. The first 39 chapters highlight the holiness of God and how Israel stands to be judged and exiled as a result of breaking his law, as a result of their continual rebellion. Certainly there's pictures of hope, and we've seen them. Isaiah 7, 9, 11, there's pictures of hope there. But the, the greater focus is on their judgment and exile. So to sharpen that a bit, look, look at the beginning of, of chapter 42. It says, Behold my servant. Now th- this comes right after chapter 41. Uh, and, and verse 24 and 29, that same word is used, behold. So 24 Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. He's speaking about the idols here, the the hopelessness, the worthlessness of the pursuit of idols. Verse 29 of chapter 41. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So we have these two pictures of the futility, the the worthlessness, the the hopelessness of of pursuit of idols. And, And in this first verse of chapter 42, he's contrasting that. He points to the worth and hope found in the Lord's servant. This is the the first of what are referred to as the four servant songs in Isaiah. Lord willing, Ben will continue with the next two weeks as we consider Isaiah 50 and 53, uh, two of the other servant songs. Um, So it's important that we, we identify first. Who is the servant? Most immediately, I think we need to see that Israel was to fill this role. The nation of Israel was to fill this role. Israel was chosen by God as a people to be a light to the nations. We see this going back to the promise that God makes to to Abraham in Genesis 12, right? In in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in that promise, he, he promises that Abraham will be a father of a multitude of nations. We also see throughout Isaiah that Israel is referred to as God's servant. If you look at Again, back at 41, uh, verses 8 and 9. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So, So Israel is intended to fill this role, and yet we see in reality that they're unable to do so. We've seen that over and over again. Right, as, as Ben has preached uh, these first three uh, sermons in Isaiah, we, we've seen this call to Israel and yet their failure to do so. Um, that's clearly seen at the end of chapter 42 
verses 18 and, and 19. He says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? So, so rather than this passage being the, the reality of who Israel is, as one commentator put it, th- this passage is an ideal held out before Israel as a vision and aspiration. It's who they were intended to be, who they were created to be. But do you see the problem? That the servant, here in Isaiah 42, is the one to bring about sight to the blind, to bring about light to the nations, to extend justice to all corners of the earth. And yet they're unable to do so because of their own spiritual blindness. As we've seen, I mentioned, Israel is set apart to keep God's law, and over and over again, they, they fail. They fail to do so, and they need one to rescue them. They need one to pay for their sin, one who would give them sight. They need one to bring about a heart change for them and for the nations. This, this is true going back all the way to Adam. It's true of Israel, and it's true of us. God's standard is set forth, and we're unable to meet it. We need to feel the, the weight of that. We need to feel the, the hopelessness of our situation. We are in rebellion against God, and we need to feel the hopelessness of that, of our pursuit of idols. But God, being rich in mercy, doesn't leave us without hope. In his grace, he establishes a new covenant in his son, Jesus, by which the blind will receive sight, the deaf will hear, justice will be established throughout the earth, and all nations will hope in his word. And so while this passage, it's set forth as an ideal for Israel, it finds its greatest fulfillment in Jesus Christ, God's chosen servant. So look again, look again, we just looked at it, uh, 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham. You see the phrase, the offspring of Abraham. If you listen now to the words from Galatians 3.16, this is Paul writing. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what's the, what's the point? This shapes how we understand that Jesus came and fulfilled all that was intended for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was supposed to succeed where Adam had failed, yet they also failed. Therefore, Jesus, according to the eternal plan of God, came as the true and better Adam and also came as the true Israelite, fulfilling all of God's plans. And more specifically, fulfilling the prophecy here in Isaiah 42. And you'll see in Matthew uh, 12, if you want to flip there, Matthew 12, I think it'll be helpful to see this. This is how the New Testament writers understood this passage as well. Matthew 12, I'm going to look at verses 15 through 21. Again, we're looking at the identity of servant. I'm making the case that this most clearly, most ultimately points to Christ. Matthew 12, 15 to 21. This comes just after um, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are upset and now pursuing a way to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. 
This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. It says this was to fill, fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. We see this over and over again in Matthew. I think by my account, this is, I think, the 11th occurrence of that phrase or, or one, one similar to it. So it's important to see that in Isaiah, in, in the other prophets, throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's promises that are made. But it's in Jesus Christ that we see those promises fulfilled. Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Again, this is certainly not to say that that we don't see promises fulfilled in the Old Testament. We do. But in their most ultimate fulfillment, we find them in the person work of of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so if we look at what's being said here of God's chosen servant in Isaiah 42, we're, we're being told to look at Jesus, to behold Jesus, Behold my servant. So let me just draw, draw your attention to a few of the specifics that Isaiah highlights here. Again, if you look down at verse 1, back in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You remember at Jesus' baptism, the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. Right? I have put my spirit upon him. Remember also God the Father at his baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He, he delights in him. Right? He delights in his Son, his servant, and tells us to look, to behold him as he knows that our looking to him will be for our greatest delight, for our greatest joy. And then he continues. We, we get this beautiful picture of Jesus in verses two through four. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Do you hear in that description the the gentleness, the the humility with, with, with which Jesus is described a bruised reed he will not break. It's just soaked with, with gentleness and humility in our Savior, in God's servant. And in contrast to how the kings of that time would come with, with much pomp and loud announcements, Jesus comes humbly in a manger. He does not come with a flashy show of power or as many expected leading a political or military movement. It says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Right? He comes as a baby. He comes as a servant. He comes as a baby. Does that, does that still amaze you? I think so often we lose sight of the fact that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, truly God, comes as a baby. He's not a savior clamoring for attention. 
rather one who comes as a servant. And these verses certainly speak to his coming, but they also speak to his death, the, the purpose in his coming. He won't cry aloud or lift up his voice in the face of his own oppression. He won't grow weary or faint-hearted in the face of establishing his justice throughout the earth. And I couldn't help but think of the language used in Isaiah 53. It says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was tr- crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He remained silent with every reason, every warrant to cry out about the injustice. He remained silent. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Behold him. Behold God's servant. Look at Christ. And as we continue to consider the identity of him, look again at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Brothers and sisters, t- take comfort in these words this morning. A bruised reed he will not break. Look, I, I don't know how each of you are feeling this morning, how you felt this past week. I don't know what situations you're each facing. But I, I do know that life can be wearying. It can be exhausting. It, it can just be flat out hard at times feel next to impossible. Maybe you're exhausted as you continue to battle with the same sins. Maybe you're frustrated over lack of growth. Maybe it's just the, the dealing with living in a broken world, the loss of loved ones, caring for a sick spouse. Maybe you're, you're dealing with ongoing health pain or health issues strain or broken relationships and families, tough work environments, challenging kids, financial struggles, marital issues, frustrations over singleness, inability to have children, dry seasons spiritually. Maybe you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread. Hear these words again. A bruised reed he will not break. Consider what what Isaiah is saying here. Reeds grew by the millions in in marshes and on riverbeds. So so they had very little value, right? And certainly if if one was bruised or or broken, it was worthless. If you had a full reed, a, a complete reed, you could use it for some everyday resources. But a bruised reed was essentially worthless. The, the bruised reed has no chance of healing itself. What, what do most boys do as they see a broken stick or he also used the idea of a, a smoldering wick, a faintly burning? You break it, right? Or you, you, you squash it out. It shows your power as a little boy, right? Not, not with Christ. 
He's gracious and gentle. He doesn't break or discard the bruised reeds. He, he restores and heals bruised reeds. And we can find joy and comfort in our Savior. We can find true rest in him, as he says. We were just in Matthew 12, but the chapter before, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I would argue the times that we feel the most, most desperate or at our end is when our focus is inward. It's, it's, we're looking at ourselves or our current situation. And please do not hear me say, I'm not minimizing what you're going through. I'm actually trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to elevate it from the standpoint of face the reality of the difficult part of life. Face the reality, and in that, I want to give you a hope through God's servant. So I'm not trying to minimize it. It is hard. These are real difficult situations. But in the midst of that, there is hope in Christ. And you see, the, the bruised reed can only look outside itself for healing. And so the, the, same, the same is true of us. So when Isaiah records the Lord's words, Behold my servant, he knows it's for the good of his people in the midst of suffering to look to the one who came to suffer on their behalf. He, he knows it's for our good. Our greatest good is to behold his servant. Behold Christ. We experience our greatest times of joy when we're not looking inward at ourselves, but rather we're looking to Jesus. So, so Christians here this morning, Jesus came for the very purpose of saving his people for the, from their sin, right? Do we not think that he will succeed in completing his mission? Do we doubt that he will complete his mission? Paul says in, in Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? It's easy to say, right? He'll bring it to complete. Do you believe it in the midst of your suffering? That what he started, he'll finish? What can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So for those in Christ, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. What he started, he will finish. And when you sin, again, do you run to your merciful Savior who delights to forgive you on the basis of his own bruising? Do we try to clean ourselves up first? Or do we run to him, showing the worth of his sacrifice? He, he came as a baby for the purpose of dying, for the purpose of being bruised. His bruising was for our healing. His bruising came at the cost of bearing our sins. His bruising came at the cost of bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. His bruising came as a substitute for us. He took what we deserved and we get what we don't deserve. We receive new life. We receive his righteousness. And this is true for all those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is the servant. And we've hardly scratched the surface. 
But this is the servant that Isaiah puts forward in, in chapter 42. This is the Jesus who we're to behold. So we've seen that Israel failed to be the servant they were commanded to be. Hopefully we've seen the truest identity of God's chosen servant is Jesus. And I want to consider, consider what Jesus as God's servant came to do. Again, we see this throughout the text, but primarily verses 4 and then 6 and 7. It says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Drop down to 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So several things to notice about this mission. First, notice it's, it's not a mission to Israel alone. It's, it's universal in its scope. It says, number one, justice in the earth. That's all of the earth. Number two, it says the coastlands wait for his law. That's the far-reaching coastlands, the isles, reach for his law, or wait for his law. It also says in verse 6, a light for the nations. So his, his mission extends to all corners of the earth. It's not a mission solely focused on a particular ethnic group of people, but rather extends to all types of people. It, it's universal in scope. And we'll come back, we'll come back to that in a minute, but but secondly, note that he has come to establish justice. This is a hot topic in, in today's day. So when I, when I say justice, I'm not necessarily looking for a response, but when I say justice, what, what do you most immediately think of? Maybe a fair society. Maybe you think of a judge hearing a case, making a ruling. That would be justice. The idea of justice that Isaiah prophesies here is, certainly includes that. It's not less than that, but it's, it's much more than that. It, much more will mark Jesus' kingdom. It's getting more at the idea of a, of a divinely revealed truth, an authoritative pronouncement of truth, and then the authority to actually carry out that truth. I think you can see that most clearly in verse 4, where he parallels this idea of establishing justice throughout the earth and the coastlands then waiting for his law. So I'm saying that, that justice here is not simply reactive. It's proactive in establishing truth as the norm for all people. Again, not just for the nation of Israel. This is for all people. So how, how is this done? It's, it's done most clearly in the coming of Jesus Christ. And here I would say is an example of, of the depth that we talked about in prophecy. There, there is a beginning to that fulfillment in Jesus' first coming, when he came as a baby, there isn't a, a beginning of that justice being established, and yet we wait for ultimate, for perfect justice to be fulfilled and complete at his second return. I think the point here, though, is to see that the authoritative pronouncement of truth is, is none other than Jesus himself. It's none other than the servant. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus has come into the world to establish a new covenant through his blood, through his death, so that all nations may know his law and know God. Jesus provides for the Gentile people, that, that is, all those who are not Jewish. He, he provides for, for the Gentile people, for all people, exactly what they have needed. 
a true word from the Lord, a divine word, divine truth. And as he's revealed himself, he's given them eyes to see. He's given sight to the spiritually blind. He's given freedom to those enslaved and imprisoned by sin. In the face of their pursuit of idols, as we saw in chapter 41, Jesus comes and provides hope for those who had no hope. There was no hope apart from Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. The fact that although we were separated from God in our sin, we have a perfect mediator in Christ, in God's servant. And you see in verse four, he he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established this justice. He was born that he may die as a substitute for the sins of his people and in doing so endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's Hebrews 12, 3. Do you see the beauty of this Jesus? Isaiah provides a, a magnificent picture of the Savior as he shows us that Jesus suffered for us, that he was bruised for us, that he endured so that we may too endure. And how do we do it? How, how do we endure? We behold him. We consider him. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold him, we are transformed more into the image of his son from one degree of glory to the next. So behold him this morning. Behold Jesus Christ. And now as we come back to the idea of this universal mission, uh, we see that his death and resurrection accomplished reconciliation with God and with one another for all those who would repent and turn from their sin. This is a message for all people. The promised future for God's people is not restricted by past failures. The fact that Israel failed to live up to to the calling and to the standard that God set before them does not deter the mission of God's servant. It actually provides the very necessity for it provides a necessity for Christ to come. And we see that the true servant of God is victorious over Israel's rebellion. So they may, and so that all nations may receive rescue from judgment and live with a hope that cannot be shaken. Paul says in his his letter to the Ephesians, chapter two, verse 12 and 13, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you see that? Having no hope and without God. Apart from Christ, there is no hope and you are without God. So if you don't know that hope that's found in Christ, I I would urge you, talk with someone before you leave. I'd be more than happy to talk with you. But even more than that, I I would urge you to trust Christ. Behold him. And now for those who are in Christ, the universal scope of his mission is continued in us. Consider these words uh, from Acts 13.47. Paul As we saw Matthew in in, in chapter 12 apply these words to Christ, Paul then takes these words from Isaiah and applies them to both him and Barnabas. Acts 13.47 says, For so the Lord has commanded us, 
saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul rightly understands that Jesus being the true servant of the Lord results in a community of servants now enabled to fulfill God's original design for Israel. So part of the mission of Jesus as God's servant was to be a light to the nations so that all those united to him would continue to be a light to the nations. In God's wisdom, he's ordained the church as his instrument to make the gospel known. And, and we're faithful to fulfill our role as we make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Church, we're, we're to be a light to the nations. As Jeremy read from Matthew 5, we are to be the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's our calling. We're, we're to be a light to the nations. But being a light to the nations is more than simply living a life that reflects the gospel. Being a light to the nations necessarily entails us speaking the hope of the gospel. And yes, again, don't hear me wrong here. Yes, our lives should reflect the gospel, but we need to speak. We need to proclaim the message. There is power and hope in the message of the gospel. So we've seen that Jesus is God's chosen servant. He's come to establish justice, be a light to the nations. And through his redemption of his people, they will too be a light to the nations. Now let us look at why we can have confidence in this servant and the mission. Let's look at the God of the servant. Again, this is seen throughout this passage, but specifically in verse 5 and then 8 and 9. Let me read them again. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Drop down to eight. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So I want to highlight two truths from this passage that are not only uh, ground for the confidence in the servant and his mission, but, but I think would be ground for confidence in your, your day-to-day walk. So first, the, the one who sends his servant to save his people is, number one, the creator of all and gives life to all. That's number one. He is the creator of all and gives life to all. And number two, in verse eight, you see that he will not share his glory. So why would that give confidence? Well, it's because the Lord is able to accomplish all that he pleases. And accomplishing all that he pleases isn't dependent on us. That's good news. I know where I would be if it was dependent on me. I would be without hope. But it's not. It's, it's dependent on his name. It's dependent on his glory. He acts for his purposes. You see that in verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. As I stated, our, our past sin and failure do not restrict our promised future. The, the, the Lord acts based on his purposes. His name and glory are at stake. Therefore, all will be accomplished. All that he says will be accomplished. And I love how in, in, in verse 5, Isaiah ties together the universal scope of the servant's mission, as we just talked about, with the one who has universal authority. 
Do you see that? Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The universe is his creation, all of it. All of it is his. So we can be confident that he will establish his law in the far reaches of the coastlands because he was sent by the one who has authority over the far reaches of the coastlands. One author put it this way, the reliability of God's promises of grace to us is only as great as the extent of his sovereignty. God can only guarantee the sure delivery of his promises in the places over which he has control. And Isaiah reminds us that the Lord is control, has control over the entirety of the universe, over the entirety of creation. Therefore, his promises will be fulfilled. I would encourage you, if, if you have time this afternoon, it doesn't take that long, half an hour, if you want to see some of the clearest teaching on the sovereignty of God, read Isaiah 40 through 48. You will be encouraged. They contrast the, the true and living God with the, the futility and worthlessness of idols. Isaiah 40 to, to 48, some of my favorite past, uh, chapters, really in all of Scripture. Um, all right. So the, the, the Lord has the authority. We just saw it. He has the authority and the ability to accomplish all his purposes. And one step further, it's grounded in his name and his glory. Later in Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11, it says, for my, name, my, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He has promised to bring forth justice. He has promised to be a light to the nations. He has promised to open blind eyes. He's promised to bring out prisoners. He's promised he would establish a new covenant. He's promised he would not break the bruised reed. He's promised he would not quench the smoldering wick. And all of this will be accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's chosen servant. For the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Do you see that? Do you, do you believe that he's accomplishing it for your good, for the good of his people, and for his glory? He sent his own son to accomplish all his purposes. And what are we to do? Behold him. We're to look to Christ. Do you see God's goodness in telling us to look? Look at my servant. He knows we will find our greatest joy, our greatest comfort, our greatest rest, our greatest delight in looking at his servant, in looking at his son, Jesus. And in looking at Jesus, we can be confident that he will sustain us, that he will keep us, and as we're about to sing, that he will hold us fast. So behold him this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would do just that. Would we behold your son, Jesus? Would we point others to your son, Jesus? Would we encourage one another to behold your son, Jesus? And Lord, I pray that as many as these words were faithful to your word, to your text, that you would use them by your spirit to accomplish all your purposes. 
Pray that you would grant us confidence and trust that you will accomplish all your purposes. Would you do that for your sake and for your glory? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.